back and you think you're getting ready to go get chow, right? You pass the the obstacle course going to what was Bobo Chow Hall at the time. And the instructors there were like, all right, ladies, put your gear down. We're going to run the course. And you're not going to run the course once. You're going to run the course and run the course and run the course. And, you know, this is another thing. Uh, the lesson I learned is like, don't let your guard down sometimes. Like you're tired. When you're tired, you make mistakes. And I made a mistake that day going through that course for like, the. I'm embarrassed to even say this, but the O course is what took me out. It's what ended my opportunity. So tell me what happened there. So what obstacle were you on? What happened? So it was the elevated obstacle. So the, the people that don't know the Marine obstacle course, the, you know, there's a series of obstacles that you have to perform. It's kind of in linear format, you know, walls that you have to scale and things you have to climb and jump over and it just tests your strength and endurance and your speed and dexterity, just a bunch of different things it's testing. But there's a, an obstacle that you, you, you climb up and you shimmy across these logs and you jump over this big log, but there's a, it's a big drop on the back end. And I was jumping over this log and I don't know, maybe it's a 10 foot drop. My, the backing up, I had a knee surgery right? It was repairing my knee. It, it, my knee wasn't fully good at this point because of all the running and the marching and the drills that we were doing. And my, my knee was bothering me. So I'm thinking I got to kind of protect my knee. As I'm getting ready to drop off of this obstacle, I'm like, I can't drop. I'm afraid I'm going to blow my knee out. So I, as I jump over this log, I kind of try to hold on to it as, with an, my arm. A, uh, it kind of cushion my fall, like slow my fall. Mm -hmm. And my shoulder popped out of socket. I didn't realize it at the time. I realized it as I was running. There's a wall right after that drop. I felt something pop and I was like, whoa, that didn't feel right. Keep moving, right? So I'm going to the wall and I go to jump over the wall and I realized my right arm doesn't work. And so I stopped for a second and then my sergeant instructor, he runs up behind me. Hamilton, what the hell? Why are you stopping? Blah, blah. <laughs> and I turn around and he looks at me and he like grabs me by my belt and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't pass out on me. You're okay. Come here, come here, come here, come here. And they start to call for the corpsman. I mean, he can see my shoulders like behind my scapula or something. I don't know. But so they take me, they take me in. The, the, the corpsman comes, looks at me. He's like, oh, we're, we're not going to be able to fix this here. And they've got like a little clinic there on base. And so they take me in there. And long story short, I dislocated my shoulder and tore my pec. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this episode, go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an ED, myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click at the top right-hand corner of that landing page, Podcasts. You scroll down, you can download this episode and other episodes on Spotify, on Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, and click the Read More to find out on guests like today, Chris Hamilton. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man, it, I'm really excited that you're here. You and I have been friends for a long time. We have. Actually, you and I are really good friends. You bailed me out of some trouble in my time. 
which is funny because we have an episode with a lawyer. People go, why do you keep a defense lawyer? I'm like, you never know when you're going to screw <laughs> up. <laughs> Just to be clear, not that sort of trouble. Right, yet, not that anyways. sort of trouble. No, 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 man. <laughs> when I think of people that unconditionally have helped me in life, that really, other than just out of the desire of just wanting to help, you're yeah. one of those people. You mean a lot to me. And yeah, well, thank you. We're next door neighbors now, too. We are. Yeah, you helped me out with that. So why would you want to live next to me? Oh, let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just luck, honestly. I think it was luck. And your neighbor had a, a house that I liked. So, which you mentioned in a previous episode, how we kind of knocked on his door and convinced him to sell it. So I don't know yeah. how we did that, but it worked. Well, you know, for the audience out there is we were looking for houses in my neighborhood because Chris liked what I did with mine. He wanted to renovate it, you know, take it back to the studs and have basically a new inside home and an older outside shell in a very established neighborhood with big yards, big trees like we've got. And we were looking, did not really find anything. And, and I live on a corner lot. And he's like, well, what about your neighbor over there on the other corner? And I was like, well, the answer is always no, unless we ask, let's paper up an offer and walk it over. And if you remember, walked it over. He looked at the offer and goes, do you got a pen? I was like, man, I'm in real estate. You can bang your rear end. There's two things I have, pens and business cards, right? Does that mean Does that mean we overpaid? Probably. <laughs> but you get the benefit. Listen, value comes in not just dollar signs, but yeah. the value of living next to me. Let, let me tell you, I learned a lot trying to remodel a house during COVID. <laughs> Dude, tell us about that. Let's talk about remodeling a house. Oh, well, I mean, we could go on for hours about that. I mean, the, the gist of it is I, I, I bought the house the beginning of the year before anything happened here in the States. And it was an older couple that lived in the house and they weren't expecting to sell or move and they just needed some time to get out. So I leased the house back to them for 60 or 90 days. Well, lo and behold, 90 days later, we're into March and we're in the thick of COVID and I need a house to be remodeled. So there we go. And so it, it took a little bit longer, but it all got done. It's It turned out nice. So. Dustin did you right though, right? He did. Yeah, he yeah. did a good job. He did a good job. He did my house too. And uh, so literally we have the two nicest houses in the neighborhood because we went above and we overspent both of us, right? Yeah, probably. But that's what we wanted though, right? Is we wanted to have something that had everything that we wanted inside of a house. Mm -hmm. For right? sure. For sure. Now for the audience, they know that I start each episode off with a joke. Okay. Hit me. All right. You ready? ready is this, this? this going to be work off? family safe? No, it is. It okay. is. It is. <laughs> I have inherently disappointed everybody with my jokes. Ready? Knock, knock. Who's there? Lettuce. Lettuce who? Lettuce in. It's cold out here. <laughs> <laughs> those are dad jokes, man. I know. I'm going to have right? to dial some of those in. You, you know, hey, it, it, we do what we can. You know, it's a family-friendly show. Okay. I like that. <laughs> I'm digging it. You know, I got two kids, so. So let's talk about you. Where are you from? So I grew up in Southwest Houston in St the Stafford Sugarland area and went to school in Abilene, went to college in Abilene, had no intention. I didn't even know where Abilene was. I, I <laughs> didn't even know it was on the map. Didn't even know it was on the map. I'd heard of it before, but you know, I grew up son of an Aggie. Uh, my friends, their parents were Aggies. My father's in the core there and served in Vietnam after uh, he got out. So that's kind of what I wanted to do growing up. I'd always thought that that's where I was going to go. And I, I was kind of a wayward kid. I got in a little bit of trouble growing up, nothing bad, but I think, you know, the youngest of three boys, and my parents kind of knew, like, I don't know if we should send him to College Station. I don't know how this is going to work out. 
And so I'd gotten a call from one of the coaches at, at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene. And I thought to myself, like, where is Abilene? Never heard of this school. But my parents sat me down and I said, look, just go check it out. If you don't like it, you can go to A&M. At least you've looked at one other school. And so I went out to Abilene with such low expectations. And I was just, I was impressed. It was a, a nice campus. There was a lot of good people. The guys I met on the football team, I mean, I, I just, I didn't know what it was going to be, whether it was going to be like a metal buildings and who knew what was going to be there, right? But it was, it was legit. I mean, it was a lot of uh, really good people. The, the football team, those guys were all, you know, everybody was all state, all region. They were all something, right? But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Division three school. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, they were, you know, not tall enough, maybe a little bit not fast enough to be in any of the higher divisions. But these were guys that were dedicated to the sport. They were competitors. They were grinders. And, you know, there was just some sort of something contagious about that and kind of what drew me in. And I think it was good for me because I, I needed something to be able to apply myself to. And I think that's really something that helped me excel in college. So, and I got to travel the country. I've got lifelong friends from that. and. You know, I wouldn't do it over, or I would do it over again. So um, would so. you say that what you got out of playing football there has some way somehow translated into the business world today for oh, you? Unbelievably so. Yeah, give me some examples of that. Well, I can tell you what, you know, the competitive drive. Yeah. Even though football is a team sport, there's a lot of individuality that goes into it. So, you know, whether you're, you're lining up to make a tackle in an open field, I mean, that's you and this guy. Right. And your teammates are helping corral them. Or if you're blocking somebody, I mean, you have to be able to excel. Every individual person has to be able to excel in their spot for the team to be successful as a whole. And then just the dedication to the craft. Right. So you have to watch the film. You have to put out into practice. You have to be able to train the things that you do when you're not actually playing or training dictate whether or not you're going to be successful. How well you treat your body. Do you rest? What do you do in your off time? being able to structure your days so that you can be successful. Because even though um, you're not playing in a, you know, quote, quote unquote, big time football program, there's still a lot of time that goes into that from what I just mentioned, film and practice and training and whatnot. You have to be, to be successful overall in college as an athlete, you have to know how to structure your times, knowing what's important at that moment to be able to get it done, but to plan out, how are you going to get your projects done? How are you going to get your studying done? So those are things that directly carry over. And as, you know, in, in the business I have today, I prefer to hire people who've been athletes, particularly in college, because I think it just requires a different level of, of dedication and the lessons you learn doing that very much carry over to the business. world. Okay. So you have a bunch of Aggies in the family, dad being in Vietnam, was the military still something on the, your mind? No, okay. it didn't really not, you know, growing up, I think my parents, cause my mom was an officer during Vietnam as well. That's actually how my parents met was in the army. And I think just the things that my mom, you know, that they saw, they, they didn't want that for their kids. My mom was a nurse during Vietnam. Oh, and, wow. and so she, she saw the worst. She was patching the holes of these, the things that she'll say now, like I, yeah. So yeah, she just, they didn't want that for their kids. You know, my, I came from somewhat of a military family. Both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. One was in the Pacific and one was in Europe. And I just, I, for whatever reason, it was never really broadcast or encouraged 
to the boys. So now you graduate college. What are you going to do? So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought, you know, real estate or banking ultimately got into, got into banking. Okay. And I spent 15, 16 years in commercial and corporate banking, corporate finance. And, you know, working with any, anything between mid, midsize and moderately sized corporations, you know, anywhere from companies that had $50 million in revenue all the way up to a billion dollars in revenue. And kind of as I got to the twilight of my banking career, I was working with companies that were in multiple countries, working on groups that did mergers and acquisitions. Got to see a lot of really cool stuff. What was um, the biggest deal you ever found? Actually, I, I was part of a syndicate that was doing a bunch of roll-up acquisitions around the country. And um, that was exciting to see. How much you know, was that? How much, what, money? money? Yeah. $400 million. Goodness. So, yeah. That's a lot of money. I think the most interesting deal that I worked on was a Chinese solar panel manufacturer bought a U.S.-based manufacturer who was trying to set up operations in Mexico. They were trying to buy a company in Mexico to distribute down into South America. Hmm. Which what was, was interesting about that? This the personalities involved. So we had a conference call with the CFO in China who, he, he spoke English, but he was somewhat hard to understand. And we had investment bankers in Mexico City on this same call. We had a Texan who was the U.S. president, and he was very much a Texan with a bunch of y'alls. And you know, he had that kind of <laughs> act. So we had a, 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 a Chinese CFO, some investment bankers in Mexico City, and a Texan. And then to kind of like throw a little extra into the mix was on our side, the investment banker that we worked with was a Spaniard. He spoke Castilian Spanish. And so he was kind of our liaison with these Mexican investment bankers. But you know this, and I'm sure most people know this, that not all Spanish is the same. It's like if you go to the UK, right? The English they speak is a little bit different. Heck, if you go to Boston, English is a little bit different. Yeah. So, but this is very different Spanish that they speak. And so we've got a, a Chinese, a Spaniard, Mexican investment bankers, and then two Texans on the phone. And it was just kind of, one, it was just an awkward call. It was funny at times, but ultimately everything ended up working out. So getting a deal. So I thought when you said the most interesting deal you ever financed, it's going to be old. Uh, you want to go there? <laughs> let's just jump in. Well, actually, before getting to there, let's do a little bit of background okay. history so that way the audience understands the some of the drivers behind this, right? Okay. So eventually, the military does come forward to mind. Forward. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, do you, or do you want to start like how we how we know each other? No, no, no. So before you and I got to know each other, the military does become a thought bubble for you. It does. Yeah. So about 2008. Yeah, I guess let me back up. So I graduated in 2001. I graduated December of 2001. So like right after September 11th. Yeah. Right. And a number of my friends actually, when we graduate, they join the military because they're like, oh, we're going to take the fight to these guys. And I'm like, 
do you not realize this is the this is an eight twenty one year old's perspective right at the time yeah. of the world right because you know everything at twenty one oh yeah and, and you kind of look back and you think this is going to be like the first Gulf War you guys aren't even going to be out of training and this is going to be done they're going to go drop bombs on these people and it, there's over before yeah, it started it's over before it started right yeah. you guys are okay great go do that and you know I didn't really know anything about life or war or whatever was going to happen right so. That, but that's what I believed. And I started working and went to grad school. Right, and I was kind of trying to make a, a, you know, a living for myself and grow my career. I go to grad school probably 2005, 2006. It's kind of like right when the surge is happening. Yeah. And, you know, but at that point, I'm not really thinking about it. It's on the news, but this is just not really bubbling up in my mind. But it kind of, it changed in 2008. And I'll never forget this. So, Somebody that I knew was killed in Iraq and I went to his funeral and I remember sitting there <clears throat> and I just thought to myself, like it, something resonated with me. I don't know, man, this is a switch just flipped in my mind. And I remember going to lunch after that uh, funeral with you know, about 10 or 11 guys. And I just remember sitting there at lunch and these guys were kind of going around the table and we're talking about remembering him, you know, what his, his situation, right? You know, he was just like me. He was, he was married. His wife was nine months pregnant with his son. And uh, I just thought this, there was a connection, right, in my mind. And I thought to myself, as they're going around the table, people were saying things that just kind of pissed me off. It was like, can't believe anybody would want to fight in this war. I can't believe look how messed up this is. And that's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. And it kind of uh, people started resonating with them. And and it kind of came back to me. And in my mind, I was like, what the hell? I was like, how could anybody not? Yeah. Like, look at what this guy just sacrificed, right? And it it, it dawned on me. I just remember hearing a statistic that, you know, the vast majority of people aren't going to serve, you know, in the United States, like what, less than 10%? Like 6.8% right. living population has ever taken the oath. But I think the Active duty and reserves is something like 1% or 1.2% of the population. So it, I'm sitting here thinking about that, and I'm like, you know what? The, maybe this is what I should do. Like, this is my calling. How old are you at this point? I'm older. I'm probably 28. Yeah. 28 at that point. And, You're um, married at the time, too. I, yep, I was. No kids. I didn't have any kids at the time. And so I just remember like walking out of that at that moment. This is what I'm going to do. I'm just, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to join the Marines. So you're still in banking. Still in banking. You're making pretty good money. Yeah. Um, I'm happy with my financial situation. My career's growing. I feel like I'm well on my way. But this, this event like just completely changed the way I saw the world. And I've never felt like called to do anything. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like set a goal and I'm going to go do this. And, but this is the first time in my life I felt compelled like this is like i have to go do this this is like i've never really felt a calling to go do something and did the did the military need me no they don't need me they we've we've got people right but they don't need me but i feel like it's my calling at this point like i have to go do this i had a coach in college he used to say and you know he he's an amazing man he he, he always used to repeat himself and i never i always thought maybe he's crazy <laughs> but looking back in hindsight he's actually a genius because he knows that kids who are 18 to 21, 22 years old are hard-headed, right? They don't always listen. But if you repeat yourself 10,000 times, 
over the course of four years of football, they're going to remember. Mm-hmm. And he always yeah. used to have this thing. He's known for having a lot of different things. But one of the things he used to say is hold the rope. And so what he meant by that was if one of your teammates goes out, right, he's injured, the next guy stands up and goes in, you better hold your end of the rope because everybody's counting on you. So that just kind of like was playing in my mind. So I walk out and I don't know where to begin. I just know I'm going to, this is what I'm going to go do. And so, you know, I haven't really talked to him in the last number of years, but my first call was to, was to James Korth. Oh yeah. So uh, James Marine. Yep. I know James, James, this is what I want to. Six foot nine Marine. Yeah. I think his grandfather was secretary of the Navy. And now he's actually a full bird colonel. And he's a lawyer. So he's a colonel in the reserves and he's a lawyer now. Yeah. yeah. So I call up James and he, he questions me. He's like, what do you want to do this for? So I kind of explained to him like what my, my perspective. And he says, okay, hold on a second. Let me, let me make a call. Let me figure out who you need to talk to. And so he calls me back and he says, hey, call this guy. He'll, he'll talk to you about it. And so he kind of made that introduction for me, kind of teed it up. And so long story short, I go in and speak to this Marine, an officer, selection officer, and he basically tells me, get out. Why? Why does he say that? I'm old. Because the Marine Corps does have an age cutoff for officers. It's 28. Yeah. Yeah. It's 28. Yeah. Old. They don't need somebody like me. You know, so people that don't know me, when I was in college, I actually played offensive line. I was 275 pounds. I was considerably lighter at this point. I thought I was in pretty decent shape, but you know, they, he asked me, you know, what's your three mile run time? I was like, I'd never run three miles before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't run. And yeah. he's like, go on, get out of my office, get out of my office. Yeah. That's pretty much what he told me. And knowing you, yeah. that's literally like a statement of hold my beer challenge accepted. Well, I kind of left and I was like, it kind of pissed off. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So I start, you know, looking into, you know, the army and the Navy. I'm like, I'm going to figure out some way to do this. And the yeah. next day I thought about it. And I was like, uh-uh, that, that kind of pissed me off. So I called the guy back and I said, hey, I was in your office yesterday. And he says, no, I remember you. What do you want? And I said, and I just kind of started talking to the guy and I said, look, what would I have to do just to even have you even consider just talking to me? And he said, you're going to have to run a 300 PFT, which is their physical fitness test. Yeah. And at the time, that's 20 pull-ups. Run a three mile in 18 minutes. Or so less. Or less. And like 80, what, what was it? Like 80 or 100 sit-ups. Yeah. 80 and, or 100 sit-ups in, what was it, less than two minutes? I can't remember. Yeah. It's, I've been out yeah. a while. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I could do like five pull-ups or something at the time. Something yeah. silly, right? I was like, all right. He said, when you can do that, you come back and call me. And so I start training. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And then I blow my knee out in a flag football game. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was 2000. That was in 2008. That was October, like 2008. So I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Not going to work. I'm still working in banking. Everything's going fine. It's going great. I'm just like, I'm not, I can't let, I can't get this out of my mind. So I have this my knee fix and I immediately start training. I'm like, well, I can't run, but I can do sit-ups and pull-ups and push-ups and train. So I just continued to train. Once my knee got to where I could run, I started running. 
and I got fast for a bigger guy. And I eventually I got there, called him up, said, Captain Pletz, I'm ready to go. And he said, well, come on, come on, you can, I'll, I'll, I'll test you. And the, we got out, we tested, I didn't do a 300, but I, I ran a 285. That's pretty good PFT still. Yeah. I eventually, I eventually got there. Yeah. And so for what I didn't realize when I got involved in this, they didn't need me. Mm-hmm. There, there were like 45 candidates in the pool that were trying to get a spot to go to officer candidate school in Quantico, Virginia. And they were only going to take like five from North Texas. And there was how many candidates? I think there was like 45. And they're only going to take five. They're going to take five because it was real competitive at that point. Yeah. They didn't. So, Yeah. And I, long story short, he ended up recommending me. I ended up getting a spot. I had an opportunity and I took it. And I, in January of 2010, I reported to Quantico for Marine officer candidate. So let's, for the audience, in 2008, you're 28. Yeah. 2010, 30. if not 30, you're 30 at that point. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I will be 30 by the time I take my commission. Okay. And I had so, to have waivers. So I was, I was already over the age limit. So my my file, like Captain Pletz made fun of my files, like the size of John Gotti's legal file. Like it was <laughs> waiver after waiver after waiver for age and for speeding tickets. And I'll actually tell people this, like getting a spot and an opportunity to go to Marine Officer Candidate School was harder than getting into grad school, actually. Yeah. And, and for the audience, you went and got a MBA. I did, yeah. yeah. In 2000, I graduated in 2006. Yeah. And it was harder to get into OCS than it was to yeah. get into getting an MBA because they just don't allow anybody to go in and get an, in, in, into an MBA program. That's yeah. hard enough as it is. And now you're saying OCS, you get a slot there is even harder than that. Yeah. For me, it was. Yeah. yeah. It was a process. Yeah. So, but I had the opportunity. I did it. I went. It didn't work out the way that I thought it would. Well, let's um, stop there before we go into that. Okay. Married at the time. Yeah. And now you're not married. Today, not today, today, right? I'm not. Yeah. That's so right. your now ex-wife Heather was mm-hmm. totally on board for you to go do this, right? No. <laughs> no. Let's talk about that. So yeah, I mean, it. I think initially, like she didn't think it would work, especially after my knee was blown out, and it's um, like, okay, sure, you have this dream that you're going to do this, but I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm one of those people, like, once I set my mind to do something, I'm going to find, come hell or high water, I'm going to find a way to do it. And so I may not be successful at the first go, but I'm going to f- dial it in. I'm going to figure it out. So now she's not on board, which naturally is putting pressure on the home front, but you're like, nope, I'm doing it. You go, you report in. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the experience of what happens there. Oh, it was a shock. It was a complete shock. I mean, as a civilian who's lived, you know, 30 years of his life going to private clubs and working in corporate America and kind of living life on your terms to, which obviously OCS is not like being in the fleet, right? It's not the same experience. It's different. It's kind of a hazing, weed you out. They're trying to figure out who has the ability to to withstand pressure, right? So it's just a different, and it's just a kind of a screening tool, if you will. but. To go from the life I was living before, and I show up one day, and clearly the oldest guy. Yeah, there. yeah, I was one of the oldest guys. 
I mean, they had some guys there that had been enlisted Marines that were, you know, so they were older, prior service. So they prior a little service. bit different story though. So my rack mate was prior service and he was yeah. my age. Yeah. And he was, he was a legit, I mean, he helped me get the right mindset once I was there. Cause yeah. like, you know, you know, you do your things during the day, you know, you're going to school and you're during the day and doing all these different training exercises that they have you doing and PT and whatever else. And they get your deer, gear dirty and messed up. And at night is when you clean your rifle and you do your homework assignments and whatever else. And so you get to know your, the people that are, you know, your rack mate and the people on either side of you, because you don't, that's the people you, you get to know. And so his name was Harley and he was a very seasoned combat veteran. And I'll never forget this. He told me it was like the third or fourth night we're sitting there, you know, marking our gear, cleaning our rifles or whatever. And he was like, Hey man, he, he, he gave me some advice. He said, I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. He goes, dude, you're going to have to change your mindset. You're not going to make it. This isn't Fort Worth, Texas, and you're not at the Fort Worth club. You're going to have to, you're going to have to flip your mindset. And he was like, this is just, and I think this is really good life advice. And, and I have to remind myself of this sometimes because you get into this little season, right? You got projects that are slamming you down. You've got some issues at work or client issues and you just get thrown in this moment and you lose perspective of what's actually happening around you. But you have to stop and say, like, this is just a moment in time. Like you have to adapt to this particular moment, get on board to getting whatever it is that you need to get accomplished. And then you can get back to life some normalcy, right? It's not always going to be this way. So it was, long story short, just to kind of wrap this piece of it up, going through the training, we'd been out in the field all day. You know, if you've been to Quantico, you know, they've got the woods out there in the hills and running you around, having you do all sorts of stuff. You don't sleep, you eat really well. That was like the coolest part of. Well, they got to pump those calories in you because they're burning them off. So right? I like to eat and they feed you three meals a day and it's unlimited food. But, Bro, I ate as I ate more food than I did when I played football in college, and I lost twenty pounds. And actually, actually, I didn't. Even, I've never even told you this. I was overweight when I got there, so they're very strict in the Marines about you got to be a certain height and weight. Mm -hmm. I was like two pounds over. Like people get sent home for that. If you show up fat, overweight, fat body, what they call you, they'll send you home. And I got boarded. I had to go in front of the colonel there that ran OCS. But he saw, like, and, you know, my age, my file, my physical fitness. And he basically said, I'm going to check on you in two weeks. And if you aren't in standard, you're going home. So it, it, it naturally happened. I mean, I lost all that weight. But long story short, we've been out all day. You're tired, hungry. And, as, you know, one of the kind of a hazing deal maybe you're kind of going back and you think you're getting ready to go get chow right you pass the the obstacle course going to what was bubbo chow hall at the time and the instructors there were like all right ladies put your gear down we're gonna run the course and you're not gonna run the course once you're gonna run the course and run the course and run the course and you know this is another thing uh, the lesson i learned is like don't let your guard down sometimes like you're tired when you're tired, you make mistakes. And I made a mistake that day. 
going through that course for like the, I'm embarrassed to even say this, but the O course is what took me out. It's what ended my opportunity. So tell me what happened there. So what obstacle were you on? What happened? So it was the elevated obstacle. So the, the people that don't know the Marine obstacle course that, you know, there's a series of obstacles that you have to perform. It's kind of in linear format, you know, walls that you have to scale and things you have to climb and jump over and it just tests your strength and endurance and your speed and dexterity, just a bunch of different things it's testing. But there's a, an obstacle that you, you, you climb up and you shimmy across these logs and you jump over this big log, but there's a, it's a big drop on the back end. And I was jumping over this log and I don't know, maybe it's a 10 foot drop. My, the backing up, I had a knee surgery right? It was repairing my knee. It, it, my knee wasn't fully good at this point because of all the running and the marching and the drills that we were doing. And my, my knee was bothering me. So I'm thinking I got to kind of protect my knee. As I'm getting ready to drop off of this obstacle, I'm like, I can't drop. I'm afraid I'm going to blow my knee out. So I, as I jump over this log, I kind of try to hold on to it as, with an, my arm. A, uh, to kind of cushion my fall, like slow my fall. Mm-hmm. And my shoulder popped out of socket. I didn't realize it at the time. I realized it as I was running. There's a wall right after that drop. I felt something pop and I was like, whoa, that didn't feel right. Keep moving, right? So I'm going to the wall and I go to jump over the wall and I realize my right arm doesn't work. And so I stop for a second and then my sergeant instructor, he runs up behind me. Hamilton, what the hell? Why are you stopping? Blah, blah. <laughs> and I turn around and he looks at me and he like grabs me by my belt and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't pass out on me. You're okay. Come here, come here, come here, come here. And they start to call for the corpsman. I mean, he can see my shoulders like behind my scapula or something. I don't know. But so they take me, they take me in. The, the, the corpsman comes, looks at me. He's like, oh, we're, we're not going to be able to fix this here. And they've got like a little clinic there on base. And so they take me in there. And long story short, I dislocated my shoulder and tore my pec. And so, I mean, obviously like that's not a quick fix. So. I, I was disenrolled. That ended the. So tell me about that conversation. Who who comes up to you and says, "Game over." Oh, the the flight surgeon does. Yeah. So they, I mean, I kind of knew it. I'm like, okay, that's a torn muscle. Probably not going to be able to do push-ups. Probably not going to be able. To, if you're not physically qualified to do the job, they're not going to let you stay. I mean, that's the thing is like they're looking for reasons to like weed people out. Yeah. And so he just came in and was like, "Sorry, dude." You're going to have to, they gave me a choice. They're like, hey, we can take you down over to Bethesda and we can do the surgery for you. Or, by the way, you're not going to be around when this is done. We can send you back to your home and you can have this done at your house, in, you know, your hometown. And so they're recover. telling you no matter what, you're not going to be able to come back and retread through. Yeah, they're like, hey, you can reapply. And apparently if you've been there and you have good, a good file while you're there, they'll give you preference to perhaps to, you know, gives you a better shot to rise to the top, to be able to get another opportunity. But I just knew at that point, I mean, if you've ever had a shoulder surgery or a muscle fix, I mean, in having two surgeries, like it, it was a year process to get fixed. And so, I mean, it was a pretty defeating experience yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So you come back here. Yeah. What do you do when you come back here? play video games <laughs> <laughs> no seriously what was interesting is like these i'd never heard of of call of duty yeah and it was actually my rack mates who were all prior service you know enlisted marines and they kept talking about this video game like call of duty and i'm like 
what are you guys that, that's what they missed they missed yeah. being able to play call of duty i'm like what are you talking about I'm like oh yeah man we'd go out in iraq we'd go go out on patrols during the day and at night we played call of duty <laughs> and i was like really so out doing it for real yeah. During the night and then during the day doing it on the video game. So I heard, so they were telling me about this video game. I was like, all right, I'll go check it out. So I can't go to work, right? I'm on, you know, disability. Line of duty was what they called it while you're waiting to get your surgery. And then once you get your surgery, so I'm not able to go back to work yet because it apparently messes up the process with the Marines with the government insurance. So I start playing these games and doing that. I, I eventually had to get rid of it because those things are freaking addictive, man. Yeah. They, just the, the gaming thing. So I, I thought to myself, oh, I can't do, I can't keep this. This is stupid. Yeah. I, I have an addictive personality, so. I had to use the word obsessed. You're obsessed yeah. with anything you do. Yeah. When it gets in your mind, dude, you're, you're zeroed in. Yeah. So now, so, so afterwards, do you go back to banking? I do, yeah. So fortunately, my my employer, you know, had a good rapport with them, a good work history, and they were like, "Welcome me back with open arms." Yeah, great, come back. And so that's what I did. Went back, got back into banking. You know, I will say, I, you know, the, the the whole experience with, you know, my my situation, you know, going through OCS, failing at that, you know, you know whether you whether it was. You would consider it a failure. I, I consider it a failure because that was really something that I thought I felt called to do when I got injured and, and was, you know, cut from the program. I mean, that was a big blow to me. I would say at that point in my life, that was probably the biggest failure I had experienced just because a lot of my friends and family members, you know, even my own parents, were like, dude, what are you doing? Don't, you don't need to be going into the Marines. But I just felt compelled. I felt like I had to do it. So coming back and, you know, when I was on my journey back to Texas this whole time, I'm thinking to myself, like, what are people going to say? Like, what, how is this going to look to people? Which you really shouldn't care what people think, right? But it was like my reputation. And it was depressing, man. I hit a very, I hit a low point. that When I wasn't working and I was at home and I spent, you know, a couple months at home, I mean, it was a very dark point in my life because it was, it was, a, it was a failure in my opinion. And I was embarrassed. But I realized, you know, it actually was that one failure. I attribute a lot of the success I've had today to that failure. So let's talk to, about to that to that having to yeah. like overcome being told no, yeah. being said told under these conditions, blowing my knee out, having to dedicate to it, going, and then the whole thing just comes crumbling down, and then bouncing back from that. I learned so much from that one experience. Like what? I, give me give me an example. So finding a way. Bouncing back from failure, learning from failure. So I learned a lot from that experience. So one, I learned I was willing to take a risk that I felt passionate about. And I think people know this, like you don't go into the military, you don't join the Marines to make money. I was making really good money and that wasn't what fulfilled me, but a purpose, having a purpose is what fulfilled me. And I felt like that was my purpose. And I know a lot of people that probably sounds stupid or cliche or what have you, but for me, that felt like purpose. And so I knew I was willing to take a risk that, you know, others may not understand. And if it, even though it didn't work out, 
I learned so much about that, you know, perseverance, overcoming failure, getting out of your own head, which sets me up for moves that I make further down in my career, further along in my career that I wouldn't have made these moves. I wouldn't have made had I not had that experience because I called back on that same, those same lessons. I actually wrote those lessons down in a journal and those, those lessons that I learned from that experience coming back from that is what helped me get to where I am today. Does that include learning lessons like financing a restaurant deal? No, <laughs> I generally don't share that lesson with a lot of people. So that's, I mean, that's how you and I met. Yeah. Yeah. So the audience, I had no idea what I was doing. Never been in the restaurant industry. Didn't know anything from anything. Decided to open a pizza and craft beer place right across from UTA. Old, what was then Old School Pizza and Suds, now Old School Pizza Tavern. And I had agreed to sign a lease-to-own document that had more holes in it than a spaghetti strainer because I didn't know anything from anything. My business acumen was probably at a negative, more that's, so than— yeah. that's, that's giving you more credit. That's giving me more credit than what we should, right? Yeah. So then <laughs> owned up, have no idea what I'm doing. And I could spend an entire episode just talking about the different hurdles getting through it. But part of the agreement was this. She agreed, the landlord agreed to sell us the property for $345,000. As long as we put $50,000 down that went towards the principal, leaving a balance of two ninety five, And then she would carry the note where the rent was $3,600 a month of which 60% of that would go towards the principal. But at the 24-month mark, the balloon was up, and we either needed to have the cash to pay it off or find outside financing to buy out the loan. Yeah, so long story short, owner financed, structured in a way that she was going to ultimately take the property back from you guys, have collected free rent. Oh, yeah. And that she was going to release it to somebody else. Probably done it five times before we even yeah. got moved in. There, it's, a great, right? it's a great deal for her. Oh, man. So, so, yeah. So now I'm a year and a half into this thing. I've got six months left and I have been laughed at by every banker in DFW. As a matter of fact, I would go in and I'd be like, hey, because I'm sitting here thinking, hey, I'm a vet, Marine Corps vet. There's got to be some vet programs that are going to help me out. And I'd walk into a bank and be like, hey, I've got a restaurant. It's been open about a year and a half. We're barely keeping the doors open and I kind of need a quarter million dollars to pay it off. And bankers would be like, oh, my God. Hey, Bob, come here. Listen to this one. Tell that one again. No <laughs> way. Get out of here. Laugh me out. Right. So I've, mm -hmm. I'm at my wits end. I, I, I don't know what else to do. So I'm um, talking to my wife, Laura, and we were dating at the time. We were, we, we, we were not. Or, or no, we were. No, you weren't married. No, yet. We were, no, no, we were. This is 2011. We're married. We're married. No, this is 2010 because I just got back from OCS. No, this is. 2011. Okay. I'm trying to figure out the dates. No, I think we're married at the time. Maybe dating, maybe whatever, whatever. I'm trying to remember. Can't, you know, I've got almost 50 year old brain now, so it's hard to remember no, things. No offense, Laura. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, she <laughs> totally lost. I totally won in getting that whole marriage situation. So anyhow, she says, well, let me ask one of my mortgage lenders if they know anybody, Julie Howe. Julie Howe says, Hey, you should talk to Chris Hamilton. So I call Chris Hamilton. You get a phone call from me. Yeah. 
This yeah. is where we start taking your business acumen from negative to positive. <laughs> because Jeremy opens up the conversation with, <laughs> I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. Hey, I've talked to like every bank in town and everybody's told me no. Don't ever, people listening to this, don't ever tell that to a banker, right? <laughs> That's not how you start a conversation <laughs> with somebody. I'm like, okay, well, keep talking to me because a mutual friend has introduced us. So what are you trying to do? I have a restaurant, strike one. <laughs> it's a non-franchise, independently owned restaurant, strike two. And you don't tell me this at the time, but you say, me and my partners, this is our first restaurant, strike three. So independently, non-franchised restaurant run by people that don't know anything about restaurants. That's just a complete failure, right? Yeah. No. And I tried to hold back the laughing, I think. I don't think I laughed. I don't <laughs> I think, think I, I, laughed. Could, I couldn't hear it, but I could feel it on the other end of the phone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but then you asked me this question. You said, well, hey, are there any programs for vets? I remember this part of the conversation. And I said, Veteran of what? And you said, well, I was a Marine. And I just remember sitting in my chair like, well, oh. <laughs> and I don't think so. And then you said, well, come on out, have a beer. Let me show you the place. Let's just, maybe you can help me find financing somewhere else. Uh, but meanwhile, I know you're going to try to trick me into doing this deal. but Which ultimately I did. You did, yeah. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so I go out, I check it out. It's actually, I mean, how, Pizza and beer. It was actually good pizza and craft beer. At the time, craft beer was just coming on, right? Yeah. It was. We had it was, 20 taps. We were like yeah. the, the game in town over there. Yeah. yeah, right across from the university. I mean, walking distance from the dorms. I'm like, how you can't screw this up. And so, and it was real estate secured. So I thought, well, what the heck? I just remember walking in, you know, having, you know, we, we've committed to doing the deal. I've committed us to doing the deal. And I remember taking that into the president of the bank <laughs> to get him to sign the deal and he's like, I'm not signing that. You sign it. <laughs> oh. All right, here we go. And he remember him telling me, he's like, everybody's got to do their first bad deal. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, it wasn't a huge deal. And but I knew it was meaningful to you. And, you know, I felt like, you know, it made sense. Yeah. And it probably didn't make sense to anybody else, but it was successful. So successful that they've actually helped finance and your expansion and and all that. So yeah, you, and you coming up well on a ten year anniversary this June two thousand twenty one. Yep. So, but what that does is that opens the door for because I recognize I knew that I mean I was at I mean like I was at the end right I was like 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 almost like a scene out of Star Wars where Leia says Obi Wan Kenobi you're our only hope right. <laughs> And I'm totally guilting you into this. Actually, if I remember correctly, as I find out you're a fighter, and I'm a fighter, down at the Fort Worth Club, there's a couple of other fighters. So I go down there and pretty much allow you to just whoop my rear end until finally we show up, we sign the documents, you and I go out, drink a lot of beers, and uh, the next day... You were like, whoa, where did these new fighting skills come from? I was yeah. like, well, I got the money now, so I don't have to take it on the chin. Yeah, I don't think you told me you were a Golden Gloves boxer. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally took a beating to get the loan. But but I knew you putting your name behind this and your reputation, that meant something to me because we didn't have a long history, right? We didn't, we didn't have this 
blood bond or anything else, but I knew that was important to me. And so coming full circle is not only did that mean something to me that literally saved the business and allowed you and I to forge a friendship where you, you're what I call a tier one friend, right? I, people fall in one of seven tiers in my world. You're a tier one friend. You're now my neighbor. You're, you're also a part of what I call my faith five. The audience usually hears me talk about the five people that I keep in my circle that I rely on for perspective and advice that I ultimately trust that they're going to tell me accuracy, not necessarily what I want to hear, even when it's when I really don't want to hear something. And you and I have built this incredible friendship over all these years that you are one of my most trusted friends and advisors. Appreciate that. And because uh, you put it on the line, you had, there was nothing out there that obligated you to put it on the line, but there was something that you saw in me and you're like, man, I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the line. And then now fast forward, not just close friends, neighbors, you know, buds, man, you know, I mean, if you called me at two o'clock in the morning and said, Hey, need some shovels, body bags, lanterns, and a 12 pack of beer, no questions. I'd be there without even blinking an eye. By the way, people ask, why do you keep a defense attorney on speed dial? Because if my friend Chris calls me at that two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to need Landon to go ahead and get me defended on that deal. But now, so that's the history of you and I, and what mm -hmm. kind of person you are. And you've told the history of, of, how you see life and are driven and obsessed. Do you continue on in the banking industry? Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, 2010, you know, that most people have heard of this, but this is when it actually was passed was the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. It takes a number of years to be implemented and start having some of these adverse effects in, in the market. By this time, I've, I've moved banks. I'm doing more uh, corporate banking, doing larger deals, working with bigger companies. And all of these companies are affected by the Affordable Care Act. And so when I'm meeting with CEOs and CFOs, working on financing their deals, you know, I'm starting to understand, and you, you have to understand what drives these people's businesses and what factors are there, what risks they have, how they manage certain expenses. And so I'd always ask about healthcare because it is, for most companies, it's one of the top expenses that they have. And so the, you know, asking them how they manage those costs, you know, I was, it was interested to, interesting to hear from CEOs and CFOs that they really didn't have a way to manage it. It was just whatever the brokers told them their costs were going to be. It seemed like it went up every single year and they really didn't know how to control that cost. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you guys are pretty sophisticated people. Y'all have, you know, very sophisticated ways of hedging your costs for, for inputs, whether it be steel or oil or what lumber, whatever it is that these folks are dealing with, but this is an expense that you see rising potentially in a lot of years, double digit rates, and you have no way to control it. It's literally sucking value out of your company. And so I, I became interested in trying to understand what was driving that. And, and in, and in that process, you know, I had friends that were involved in the brokerage business and, you know, I would rely on them for advice and introduce them to my clients and try to help them out. And what I really learned in that process was that and I think most people would agree with me, the healthcare system is broken. Health insurance system is broken. And what I thought, you know, was that anybody that could come up with a solution for these companies could, could really, there was a real opportunity to one, do good for not just the companies, but for the employees and two, develop a really good business. There's a business opportunity. And so kind of fast forwarding, 
those lessons that I learned when I left banking to join the Marines, taking a risk, being willing to, you know, put your financial interests aside for the moment for an opportunity. I mean, that's really, I leaned back on that to go into a new business and to get into benefits consulting. So you, not for the first time in your lifetime, say, I'm going to leave what's comfortable and go do something different. So now here's the second time. But you were able to rely on the experience you got from going to OCS to here, right? Yeah. So this, yeah. So by this point in my banking career, I've been very blessed. I've been very fortunate. My career is at, I'm at the peak of my career. I've been one of the top bankers in the country for the last couple of years, um, making more money than I thought I would ever make. I was very comfortable. I was doing well and in a very good place. But I just saw an opportunity and felt that I had to take it. If this is one of those things, right? The longer you wait, inaction is an action. And so if I didn't act on it at this point, then I probably never would act on it. Like This was the opportunity. And I decided that I was going to seize it. And that's what I did. And I went to go work with some friends of mine trying to learn healthcare, health insurance. And what I like to tell people now is that I'm still a banker. Corporate finance is still in my blood. And I'm helping companies finance healthcare really in their companies. And it's really taking that sort of approach. I mean, the reality is of what we do now is we're fixing healthcare. Fixing healthcare in America because what most people don't understand and it's really how I ended up with the group that I'm in now. Well, um, before we jump to that one, you go to this company uh -huh. and you are wildly successful there. Top producer, right? Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, you made up what percentage of, I remember you and I having a conversation, you made up what percentage of the sales over there or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I don't remember, but it was a, it was a large number. We, we, right. I, my career got off in, when getting into the benefits consulting business, it got off to a very fast start. Yeah. So um, you're, you're did, top of the game over there. Yeah. Within three years, I was making three times the money I was making as a banker. I was yeah. doing real well. Yeah. Very early on in my career though, this is like what's solidified in my mind. This is what's really made the cornerstone of my my personal philosophy when it comes to, to the business, and it's really the cornerstone of our firm's philosophy that healthcare is broken. So most people don't know this, but brokers get paid a percentage of the premium that companies and individuals pay. So the more you pay, the more I make. So what's my incentive as a broker? If you have a company for you to pay more money, the more you pay, it's like this perverse incentive. Like we have the opposite incentive. We're on the opposite side of the table. So, I, you know, I took over a group and they got a, a 15% increase in their premiums. And my friends are like, hey, no, 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 this is a good thing. You're going to get a 15% raise because the premiums went up. So I'm thinking, all right, cool. I guess you got a raise. Sweet. And, you know, I get a call from one of the employees, single mom. I'll never forget this phone call. Single mom has three kids. Son needs to have a procedure. She's in tears on the phone. And she's telling me, I'm on the highest deductible plan because that is the only one I can afford. The monthly premium is almost as much as my mortgage for my family. I can't afford to spend $5,000, the out-of-pocket deduct deductible to pay for my kid's procedure. What do I do? And she's literally in tears. And that moment, like it just flipped a switch in my mind. I thought, this is wrong. I can't profit off of a system. This is there has to be a different way. And there is. 
But most people don't realize if you think about what's happened in healthcare, and the reason why I talk about healthcare, because people say, oh, well, you're in health insurance. What does healthcare have to do with it? Well, healthcare has everything to do with it. People need to understand that the cost of your health insurance is a symptom. It's like a temperature when you're running a fever, right? The fever isn't the disease. The fever is a symptom. The high cost of your health insurance is just a symptom. The root cause is the cost of healthcare. All right, so think about it. If whatever healthcare, we have to charge enough in health insurance premium to cover the cost of healthcare. So if healthcare costs rise, so do the cost of your premiums. The way to address your premiums is to lower the cost of your healthcare. You think about how the healthcare system works, you know, everybody seems to own one of these, a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. Either an Android or an Apple. People know the difference between an iPhone 12 Pro and an iPhone 10 or a 10R or a 10S or whatever it is, right? Right? Because the information is readily available. You understand the cost. You understand the features and benefits of it. And you have multiple places that you can buy those things and multiple different arrangements you can get in with a, with a phone carrier, right? You can rent one. You can buy one. You can do all sorts of stuff depending on your budget. Healthcare doesn't work that way. People walk in every single day and they're going to buy something that will cost as much as a house or a car. You walk into a hospital, you're not walking out with a small bill. You're going to have something big, right? But you're going to buy something that might cost as much as a house. And in some cases, it might cost as much as a mansion. And you're never told what it costs. You never understand who's even going to be doing all the things on you, on you to you. Um, and you don't understand the quality. Why? This is the way the system works. It's not transparent. And by the way, you're not even the one that's going to pay for it. You have your deductible, but it's really the insurance company's money. And so people walk around with this belief that eh, it's not my money, it's the insurance company's money. So really, the, the cornerstone of our practice really is, is fixing healthcare. We're going to fix the way people buy healthcare, which is ultimately going to result in lower costs for companies. So were you able to fix it when you were with your previous company the way you wanted to? Yeah, so we started learning different ways to affect the costs. But really, you know, I had the opportunity to, to join another organization I'm a larger organization that was statewide. Which is the organization you're with now. Yeah. So, which is? Which is Hotchkiss Insurance. So, so I'm a partner at Hotchkiss. I oversee. Now, you've been with Hotchkiss for how long? A little over two years. You're already a partner. Yeah. Did you hire on as a partner? No. No. So I, the You intent, made partner. I made partner within my first year. Wow. So, and that really was my intent. I saw an opportunity. So I saw a group who was, was large very financially stable, had a presence across the entire state, very solid footing in the traditional property and casualty business, which is you know commercial insurance. Had a benefits operation, but they were looking to transform healthcare and benefits. And through mutual friends, I have a friend who's a partner there, I shared this vision that I had about fixing healthcare for companies, fixing healthcare for the average American where we're going to do good for our clients. Our clients are actually going to lower their costs. The employees are actually going to get better benefits. And our company is going to have a sustainable business from it. And in that business model, everybody wins. And that's not the tradition. That's not the standard in our industry, in the brokerage industry. Brokers make a lot of money behind the scenes in a non-transparent way. They make money in seven ways they don't share with clients. It's the, they're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay, so... so here you are. Here I am. I, yep. join, I joined the firm. They put resources behind what we're doing. We, we start growing the business. 
we're picking up clients. They see the work that we're doing. I, I, I make partner and they've given us the opportunity to help craft and grow this business because they see the, I mean, maybe it's altruistic, but you know, this, it's, it's something that I'm passionate about helping, helping people. So who, who is a target customer for you? Like what size of company, what kind of company, like, yeah. Kind of give me a little bit of a 30-second movie preview. Into yeah, so most of the, the groups that we work with are going to have more than 50 employees. And the reason why that's important is because once you cross, there's a kind of a delineation or demarcation, if you will, because of the Affordable Care Act. If you've got less than 50 employees, you're in what's called community rating. There's not a whole lot that we can do to affect your costs. You're kind of stuck in that market. But over 50, the world opens up, the world of opportunity opens up to, to some creativity and customization. And, that, and that's really what we focus on. You've got to get out of the status quo. If you are happy with the way healthcare works in your world, for your company and for your employees, staying in your traditional insurance markets, you know, what we would consider what's called fully insuring your, in, your benefits is, hey, keep doing the same thing, expect the same result. If you want to do something different, um, you've got to try something different. So really, I would say our practice is really geared working with companies that have between 50 um, and a thousand employees. And the reason why, I mean, I kind of stop at that size, that, that upper end. Do we have clients that are over a thousand employees? Yeah, absolutely. But when you think about the market segment that we're in, who I'm really trying, who our practice is really trying to, to help, it's going to be businesses that are privately owned, generally run by a founder or that second generation, people that still have that entrepreneurial spirit that are willing to try to take control of what they do. Generally, when you get into those larger companies, they, it's not their money, right? They're professional managers of those companies. They may have a piece of ownership in it, but it's, at the end of the day, it's not their money. And the people who it's not their money are not necessarily the people that, we, that we're really focused on. Can we help them? Absolutely. But you know, we're, we're, we're really trying to change healthcare. And I find that people that are with those smaller companies, you know, under 1,000 employees, they're more likely to subscribe to, to the, the uh, strategies and philosophies that we use. And they work. They work. We've been doing it for years. And to see companies that, I mean, some of which you know here in town, offering their employees better benefits. They have access to free healthcare in many instances. And these companies are saving 20%, 30% compared to what they were spending before. They're building up cash reserves. People are able to get high-cost medications for free, no cost. People can have surgeries, hip replacements, baby births, those sorts of things at no cost. There's no deductible to do that if you subscribe to some of the strategies and philosophies that we use. So, I mean, there's some really cool stuff that's out there. But the difference between what we do, and this is where I saw the opportunity with Hotchkiss, building a business in this new world that we're in versus having this massive business that's built on the status quo. It's hard to move the Titanic, right? These businesses, they're lucrative, built on the back of this old insurance system that's out there. Our business was relatively small, and therefore, we got to build it from the ground up. We got to decide what sort of practice are we going to have? How are we going to make money in this market? We didn't have to lose money by flipping and converting clients into this new system. We started out with that. There's a very different philosophy around a business model. Our business model is very different than your traditional brokerage. And, and if there's anything that I know that when someone gets you, they get someone with passion, 
obsession, perseverance, out-of-the-box thinking, and integrity and courage. That's what I know is you just as my friend. You're not just that way as a friend. You're that way in business. So let's come. Well, I just mentioned to you really quick. So yes, I appreciate you saying all those nice things about me. Our team is built that way. We've built a company around this. The people that we've selected to join our organization, we hired specifically very bright people outside of the insurance business, people from finance and banking that, that, that also believe in our mission, that believe in our philosophy and strategy. It's not just me. We have a team of people at Hotchkiss that believe in this. Very smart people. We have people from investment banking, corporate finance, just a wide, diverse background of people that are very bright, that believe in what we're doing. They've seen the effects. You just ask the average American, whether it's you, me, or somebody off of the street, we've all either had our own adverse events that have happened in our bad experiences with insurance, or we know somebody that has. Medical bills for the average American, I mean, that's, one of the, that's the number one driver of bankruptcy in America. So we're really trying to fix that. Yeah, man. Well, Incredible story, incredible journey. You know, I like to end these things. Listening to these is you could go back to 20-year-old stuff. million things we would tell ourselves. Would we listen? Maybe, maybe not. But if there's one thing that you could grab 20-year-old self by the ears and say, do this or don't do this, yeah. what is that one thing you would tell Chris Hamilton 20 years old? Yeah, you know, that's a deep question. There's a lot of things I would tell the 20-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. Um, <laughs> I think back through some of the, the things that have happened in my life growing up, I feel like I was a successful kid growing up, you know, pretty much to the age of 20, like everything I'd ever tried to do and put my mind to, I was successful. I had never really experienced failure in my life at that point. What I would tell myself, because this, granted, when I was 20 years old, this was before the whole Silicon Valley, you know, fail fast, fail often, fa this whole failure of being cool thing, right? Failure wasn't cool when I was growing up. I would tell, I would give that advice to myself that you're going to fail. It's okay. Persevere through it. Because shortly after my, you know, I got into business, my first experience in business was rough. And it was a, I had a failure at the start of my career that really kind of stuck with me for you know, four or five years. It kind of jaded my opinion or my, th my thoughts about how business worked. And, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, I mean, that's the advice I would give that 20-year-old. Perseverance, man. And you know, and the interesting thing is we're getting ready to come up on 30 episodes. No one's given the same answer. That's candor right there. That's digging in deep. There's a lot of things we want to tell ourselves. I, I know at some point one of these answers are going to overlap with the others, yep. but man, I, I, I could make a series out of what would you tell 20-year-old self. Okay, so for the audience, Want to learn more about Chris Hamilton's business over there at Hotchkiss? How, how do they find? Is there a website, email? What, where do they go? What does the audience find? Yeah, the best place to find me is going to be on LinkedIn. Okay. So just Chris Hamilton at Hotchkiss Insurance. Or if you Google Hotchkiss Insurance, you're going to find our website. It's uh, www.hiallc.com or just search Chris Hamilton in LinkedIn. So I, I do post some. I openly share some of the strategies that we use with our clients. and you know, hopefully it's helpful to some. We're, we're really trying to transform what's happening in healthcare and health insurance. I do mentor and work with other brokerages around the country to try to help teach what we do to others. We're solving healthcare. We're fixing healthcare one company, 
one employee at a time. That's awesome. And if you don't know what the website was or you can't remember, but you're listening to this episode, of course, you can always go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED at the end. Myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on podcast at the top right corner of that landing page. Scroll down to Chris Hamilton's episode. Click on the read more. We'll have the LinkedIn and the website and everything else where you can come in and learn more. Get a hold of him. This is a, this is a good man. He's not just a good friend. He's not just a trusted advisor, but man, he's got a lifetime of experience of showing that he's going to persevere. Thanks for coming in, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, brother. Awesome. What'd you think? It was great. Yeah.